Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. Last week, we heard from Astro Teller, the scientist at the helm of Google's research and development lab known as X, who described the aim of his research as trying to be responsibly irresponsible. Our guest this week made his name by tearing apart smartphones and laptops to understand how they were built and publishing his findings online in open source repair manuals. We have all of these electronics manufacturers going down this very, very risky path of gluing batteries into devices. And the reason that they're gluing them in is they're trying to eke out that last tenth of a millimeter or fifth of a millimeter of thinness. And there's a real economic cost to it. The voice of Kyle Weens, chief executive of iFixit. He spoke to our San Francisco reporter, Tim Bradshaw, about the risks involved in the race to create ever thinner devices, which he describes as gadget anorexia, and what his company is doing to promote repair and recycling. Kyle, thank you very much for joining me. I wanted to start and see if you can tell me a little bit about what is iFixit and how you started it and what its mission is. We are a free and open source repair manual. So it's our goal to teach everybody how to fix all their stuff. So we're kind of like Wikipedia. We have lots of information about lots of things, and they're step-by-step guides. So let's say that you have an iPhone with a cracked screen and you want to be able to fix it. We have instructions that will teach you how. Or if you want to know how to learn how to patch drywall in your house or how to repair a car or change the oil in your car, we've got information on that too. And then we have a community of people that are helping each other troubleshoot problems. So if your computer's not turning on and you're not quite sure why, we have a lot of experts that are excited to help you solve the problem because we're a whole bunch of folks that are really motivated by helping each other fix our things. And what inspired you particularly to, to start it up? What was, your, what was the problem that you were trying to solve? I was trying to fix my Apple laptop. I had an iBook at the time, and I couldn't figure out how to take it apart. And I was Googling around for the information, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, And I learned that Apple and other manufacturers are actually using legal threats to prevent people from knowing how to fix things. So every product, when they design a product, they also write a repair manual for it that's available for authorized technicians and other folks. And they will send lawyers after anybody that posts those repair manuals online. And I thought, well, this is kind of frustrating, and I can't get the manual and post it online myself, and so I decided to just write a new one. And that was really what kicked the whole thing off, was me being frustrated, fixing my thing, saying no one else should have to go through the same pain and suffering that I just did, so I'll write a manual and share it, and we'll go from there. What went from writing your own manual to building this into a company and an organization? Well, the manuals just got very popular very quickly, and all of a sudden there was this clamor, and people wanted us to keep writing more and more and more. And eventually, it got to a point where like we couldn't possibly write all the manuals that people wanted from us. So we said, "Well, let's turn it into a community," and we made the site into a wiki. Anybody can contribute a manual, and then other folks come along and help make it better. And then we realized that we would be able to be financially sustainable by by selling parts and tools alongside it. So if you if you have an iPhone with a cracked screen, you can use our instructions for free. And then if you want, you can buy a part that comes with the tools. So you need a special tool to open up your iPhone. It's not something that you can just do with the screwdriver that you've already got in your in your toolbox. Yeah, so this is something new that Apple started doing a few years ago was they introduced a new special screw that hasn't existed anywhere else in the world before onto the iPhone. And it was specifically designed to make it hard for consumers to fix their phones because it used to be a standard Phillips screw like you'd have on your eyeglasses. And the new screw is just something new. So they're trying hard to make it hard for people to fix things. I'm working my dangdest to make it as easy as possible for people to fix things. And so we went ahead and and reverse engineered the screw and we sell that screwdriver now. 
there was a, a video that popped up online recently inside Apple's design lab. And I think I saw a sort of close up that looks as though that Apple's own engineers yes. use your tools yes. to take apart their own phones. And not just any engineers. This is like the holy of holies. This is inside uh, Johnny Ives design lab. And uh, yes, the, the, the top designers at Apple are using our tools to build the products which I think is fascinating. And, and there's this interesting cyclical element to it where when they released the Apple Watch, they used a tool in there that didn't exist before. And so we reverse engineered it, added it to our toolkit. And now they're using that tool to design the next Apple Watch. Right. When you do these kind of teardowns for products, I think what's interesting, a lot of the investment community look at them because it, it's often the first time that anybody finds out who the component suppliers are. When you're pulling out apart an iPhone, you can tell that it's a Qualcomm chip or a Cirrus Logic chip or whatever it is that's providing different components for the interior, which, which Apple themselves don't usually disclose. But you also give them a, a kind of score for repairability. How, how do you kind of calculate that number and what does that sort of score out of 10 mean? Right. Yes. Yeah. So when we take the things apart, we learn a lot and we learn the, the component suppliers and that's very beneficial. If you if you go into a Bloomberg terminal and you search around for uh, you know, any any silicon uh, company stock, you'll find you'll find our references in there. But then we also learn how easy or hard it is to, to fix. And that's that's hopefully a symbol to consumers to say, hey, if I'm going to buy a phone, maybe I want to buy a phone that if I do a couple years down there, drop it. Or, you know, you think of it kind of like a car. What is the residual value of a car going to be three, four, five years down the line? That might impact which manufacturer you decide to buy it from. It's the same thing with electronics. The more repairable products tend to hold their value better. So we get the product on day one before anybody has really bought it, take it apart, and then give people a feel of, is, is this going to be a product that's going to hold its value? Is this going to be a product that's going to be expensive or inexpensive to repair? And that holds regardless of whether the individual consumer is repairing them or they're just being repaired more generally, right? Like the, the repairability score kind of speaks to that durability, regardless of whether you're taking it to a shop to do it or, or doing it yourself. Right. And the nice thing about having public information is, let's say you don't want to fix your iPhone screen yourself and you want to take it to a local shop, but you'd like to get a feel for how much work is entailed and what they're going to be charging you for. Being able to see what the procedure is makes you a much more informed consumer. Of the kind of mainstream mobile manufacturers, who, who does better and who does worse, or are they all much of a muchness? Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's a it's a mix. Uh, it used to be that that Samsungs were easier to fix, and Apple's phones were harder. Now it's kind of the reverse. LG has really stood above the pack in terms of cell phone repairability. LG really is the best one out there. The LG G5 we scored an eight out of ten. It's really a fantastic device. HTC and Huawei lately have been doing a really poor job, and we really haven't been fans of the designs they've been coming out with. You mentioned Samsung there, which leads us neatly into the Note 7 situation. What do you think went wrong there? I mean, you've written a little bit about some of the issues with glued-in batteries and people packing in a, a large amount of components into ever smaller, thinner handsets. Was the Note 7 just unlucky, or was there something that Samsung did particularly that caused this problem? Designing modern electronics is incredibly challenging, and we're trying to pack as much battery power into these things as we possibly can. And you know, batteries, like anytime you have stored energy, it has the potential to be a combustion source. We've seen iPhones that were damaged recently, an iPhone 7 that was damaged and caught fire. So any, any electronic device can have this problem, but Samsung had a number of manufacturing flaws in, in the course of putting that product together that resulted in a very small percentage of them going into self-disassembly mode, as we say. 
And and this is frustrating, but it's it's I think going to be inevitable that you're going to have engineering mistakes like that. And the question is, is the system that you build around that resilient and able to recover from a mistake or not? But one of the things that you you've picked out is is the sort of glue in battery problem, and it's it it just makes it harder to to kind of take out the component that is in many ways quickest to fail or most likely to fail. Why why do manufacturers do that rather than having replaceable batteries, which until very recently, I think Samsung had, right? Right. And the previous Note model did have a replaceable battery. So imagine if this exact same problem had happened with the previous Note. Samsung wouldn't have had to recall all those phones. Instead, they would have just recalled the batteries and they would have sent people out new batteries and everything would have been good. And if you wanted to take it onto a plane, you'd just leave the battery at home. You could take your phone on the plane and it would have been no problem. So instead of it being a billion dollar problem for Samsung, it might have been a 50 or a hundred million dollar recall. And, and so this is really fascinating that we have all of these electronics manufacturers going down this very, very risky path of gluing batteries into devices. And the reason that they're gluing them in is they're trying to eke out that last tenth of a millimeter or fifth of a millimeter of thinness. They want to make these devices as thin as possible. And there's a real economic cost to it. A tenth of a millimeter, is that is that all you get from having a glued in? It's it's really shocking. You can look at the difference, like the LG G5 has a has a user replaceable battery. You can look at the difference on the Note and the previous one. It's it's very little thickness that you have to add to the device in order to have a removable battery. And so a lot of people have talked about how Samsung were trying to rush the Note 7 out to market before Apple got their new iPhone out in the autumn, and you know they were just kind of packing it with with features to try and trump that next product that was coming out. That seems like there's a an endemic problem there to almost any phone manufacturer that might be doing that. But is there a question that, you know, Samsung, which is one of the largest electronics manufacturers in the world, just got sloppy here? Or is, is it a more of a sort of, they just got unlucky? That's a possibility. It's really hard without diving in to their supply chain and really seeing things. Uh, what I can say is from a hardware perspective, the Note 7 is not very different at all from the Samsung S7 and the S7 Edge, which came out several months earlier. So we didn't really feel like it was a forced, like really hard, aggressive timeline. And the way that the battery is, is you know, stored inside the device is very similar to on the S7. So it's possible that they were pushing their suppliers hard, but we didn't see it from the product design. And what about the sort of general issue of exploding batteries? Is, is Samsung obviously has been a very high profile example of it, but there are other instances and it's something that happens not just when consumers are using the phone, but also in the recycling process sometimes, right? Right. This is a major challenge with, with batteries is that, you know, that in any energy storage device is going to have challenges over the lifespan. Uh, when batteries get old, they can swell and, and you have to remove them from the device. After every year or two, you need to be able to swap out the battery in these things. It's important for the lifespan of these devices that, that you be able to swap out the battery and that when it gets to recycling time, that's easy to remove the batteries. And that's something that the electronics manufacturers are not doing a good job of. They're not required to do the recycling themselves, and, and they're not providing any of the recyclers with safe processes for removing them. So I'm hearing about, about fires at recycling facilities. I'm hearing about lots of safety issues that are caused by these glued-in batteries. And the recycling community just doesn't really know what to do about it. And have other smartphone manufacturers sort of taken notice now that there was this very high-profile incident with Samsung? Are, are more people looking to iFixit to you know, figure out how to make their design safer and, and more recyclable after this? 
We're definitely seeing interest in, in making batteries more modular. We do repairability consulting where we'll come in and, and help a, a manufacturer design a better product. There's a lot of interest, I think, in, in designing these things in such a way that they can be assembled and disassembled in a straightforward way. Part of the challenge is that everybody has been has been chasing Apple's industrial design philosophy. And I think that they're taking good lessons from Apple, but I think that also sometimes we're learning the wrong lessons from Apple, which is that Apple has this make it thin at all costs. I like to call it design anorexia. Um, <laughs> you make it really, really thin, and sometimes there are problems that come from that. So what what have you been tearing apart lately in your labs? What, what What's the most interesting device that you've taken apart and looked inside? Well, the thing that we've been working on lately has been the slew of new MacBook Pros that Apple released. They're the thinnest MacBook Pros they've ever released. Some people are saying maybe they're a little bit too thin. They are removing features like they removed the function keys from the keyboard. They're uh, not giving people some upgrade options so you can't upgrade the storage or the RAM after the fact. Uh, so we pulled them apart to see what the status is. And unfortunately, it seems like Apple's doing the same thing with the design of the MacBook that Samsung did with the Note, which is they're gluing the batteries very securely in, into these devices. It's frustrating to see that design is the only option from the biggest electronics manufacturer in the world because I think a lot of folks would like to see an option to be able to replace their batteries more frequently. Recyclers don't have any idea what to do with these things. Every recycler I show the new Retina MacBook Pro Design 2 just kind of shakes their head and says, well, we'll just make sure that we never get those products for recycling. We talk mainly about smartphones here, which are type of electronics that most people have in their pockets but we've got smartwatches and other wearable devices we have vr headsets coming out obviously you don't want those exploding on your face you've got these smart home speakers and all these kinds of things how, how do those new kind of form factors as as the internet of things spreads make these kinds of challenges more difficult is it are these any easier to repair if they're small enough to fit on your wrist or big enough to sit on your coffee table we're adding electronics to more and more products. Uh, and what ends up happening is that the electronics are the first thing to fail. If you buy a refrigerator with integrated electronics or a stove with integrated electronics, you know that circuit board is going to be the thing that fails soonest. It also adds the software lifecycle to products. So Samsung has a refrigerator they released a couple years ago that's now obsolete because Google changed the API and broke the calendar that was on the touch screen on, on the refrigerator. This is something that we have to figure out where we're used to obsolescence with cell phones and computers, but now as electronics move into everything else in our lives, we're going to have obsolescence around everything. Uh, Google bought Nest and, and they had a smart home product called the Revolve and Nest decided to turn off the servers that the smart hub talked to, which meant that everybody's smart homes just stopped working. Your sprinklers stopped working, your locks stopped working, everything just stops working. Uh, and, and so this is a challenge is we're excited about new technology and the pace of change in these new gizmos, but the electronics world also brings a lot of obsolescence with it. Right. And do you see any kind of general trend or, you know, are, are things improving as, as people, you know, get more concerned about e-waste and recycling or, or, or is there things actually going in, in the opposite direction as, as kind of more and more phones are produced more and more cheaply and, and trying to kind of reach other parts of the developing world that can't afford a $600 phone that you can take back to an Apple store and, and trade in. Well, one of the nice things about the free market is that it, it really provides modularity where as you as you have products that are, that are sold and resold, they become available to more people. So as folks around the world can't necessarily afford brand new devices, but they can't afford our devices from two years ago, that's a wonderful thing. 
And so the more that we see refurbished and reused products become mainstream, that the better it is. It, it takes a huge amount of raw material to make a brand new cell phone. It's over 500 pounds of material to make a new iPhone. And so if we're going to expend that much energy in making it and, and that much cost upfront, we should get as much utility out of it as we possibly can. And maybe that's not just the first owner. Maybe that's the second, third, fourth owner of the device. Are the manufacturers doing a lot of these kind of trade-in schemes and selling the refurbished devices now? Is that something that's that's kind of accepted or, or is that something that's kind of done a little bit, you know, on the down low so that it doesn't devalue the main uh, shiny new product that they've got coming out? It really seems like in the in the cell phone world in particular, everyone is is on board. All of the new carrier plans have you paying you know month by month, and then you get a new device every 12 or 24 months. But part of the pricing is that you have to give your old device back. And so the carriers are refurbishing millions of phones a year. And now the manufacturers are getting on board with it. Apple just started selling refurbished iPhones just like they have been with laptops. And that's a fantastic thing for getting the message out there that, hey, a pre-owned device is perfectly okay. It's possible to sanitize your data and create a secure path from the first owner to a refurbished device to the second owner. So it's actually, in some ways, it's it's better to take a new phone and trade it in every every year than it is to kind of just hold on to the old one for four years or something? Well, it, it just depends. What we want to avoid is buying new products. At, at a high level, the real environmental impact is in manufacturing. We made almost 2 billion cell phones last year. And so if you look at the system of the world and you say how many cell phones do we have to manufacture every year if if we can make sure that phones aren't ending up in drawers and closets that every single phone out there is that has been manufactured is in use that's going to end up with with the best net positive outcome so it, it kind of doesn't matter if you buy a new phone and then sell it after a year or keep your phone for four years as long as every phone that's manufactured gets used for four years that's that's the best possible outcome right and, and what else can regular consumers do to kind of reduce the environmental impact of their electronics the best thing that you can do is like take the cell phones that are in your drawer and go and sell them online sell them to amazon or gazelle or somebody and and uh, get them back into into circulation that will reduce the market price of those devices which will end up making them more affordable to more folks and then i think when things do break make sure that you that you fix them or get them fixed or sell them to someone who will fix them Okay, Carl, that was fascinating. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to chat to the Financial Times. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week when San Francisco reporter Hannah Kushler sits down with Zvika Krieger, the U.S. State Department's first ambassador to Silicon Valley, talking about bridging the culture gap between Washington and the tech capital. If you would like to comment on this week's show or suggest a topic for us to cover on future episodes, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Amy Keane.